Hey, welcome back to the Bill Bennett Show, my new free podcast. We have a great show lined up for you today. We'll talk with Eva Moskowitz, one of the pioneers of urban education reform, about her success academies and how her poor inner-city minority students are outperforming rich white kids. We'll also discuss race relations in America today with Professor John Marini, a really smart guy on these issues, and dare I say, one of the few professors in academia in the social sciences who supports President Donald Trump. But first, a few thoughts of my own. When when you listen to Eva Moskowitz later on in this show, um, you'll be struck by what incredible good news this is. And I close my interview with her by talking about a quote from George Eliot, Excellence is important, is great, is profound because it encourages us about life generally. Um, her work encourages us about life generally. I hope you'll listen. Uh, the, our conversation with John Marini maybe isn't so encouraging, but important to understand the root of our intellectual and political, large, in the largest sense, political problem. So please pay attention to that. But a few thoughts of my own first. Um, I was on Fox News with Martha McCallum earlier this week to discuss the rise of Antifa and the violent left. I want to reflect on that for a bit, and then I want to say a word about ESPN. Antifa is this group, um, it's uh, Antifa short for anti-fascist, but the, the short explanation is these people are fascists themselves. They do not allow free speech, um, and they often try to physically uh, intimidate uh, and beat, uh, uh, harm people who uh, disagree with them. And the uh, people who disagree with them are, of course, Ku Klux Klan and white supremacists, but also people that uh, people at Antifa think really belong in the same category. For many Antifa people, that would be Trump supporters, uh, conservative Republicans, and the like. They have disrupted and um, uh, prevented people from speaking at Berkeley uh, and at many other places. Uh, they come to demonstrations with uh, clubs and uh, uh, other things. I saw one Antifa member with a cigarette lighter and a can of, was it paint thinner or, or, or something else? Chris? Looked like spray paint. Spray paint uh, to make a torch out of it, a flamethrower out of it. Uh, and they are, um, uh, they are a real danger to the republic. Now, you might say, well, there are always such groups with us. And yeah, that's right. I mentioned on the Fox show that when I was a dean at Boston University back in the 70s, uh, I was voted one of the 10 most repressive college administrators in the country by the Revolutionary Communist Youth Party. It's kind of a kind of a distinction, I guess. Um, but, so, you know, there they were. The, the difference now is that they're getting some respectability from uh, the left generally, and even from some liberals. Notice uh, things in Nation magazine and Slate and others uh, saying, you know, Antifa's on to something important. And how about this? Would you be shocked to hear that uh, professors at universities uh, are supporting Antifa? There's a professor at uh, a university you've never heard of called Dartmouth. pretty famous place, uh, who wrote a book about Antifa. He's a big Antifa supporter, believes that certain kinds of speech should be shut down before people are allowed to utter it. Um, Not acts should be shut down, speech should be shut down. Uh, Well, 
um, the president of Dartmouth said, gee, that sounds like a violation of the First Amendment to me. And we believe here at Dartmouth, said the president, that um, people should be allowed to speak their minds. Well, uh, the faculty um, decided to write a letter signed by 100 faculty members getting behind the president, you think? No. Getting behind the professor. Uh, This guy who supports people's battering other people over the head because they have different views, not allowing them to speak, he supports them, and he is supported by a large part of the faculty. For $60,000 a year, you can send your kid to Dartmouth to be educated by people like that. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me if you were thinking of transferring your child from Middlebury to Dartmouth because you like (laughs) one cold winter climate or another cold winter New England climate. Uh, you'll be wasting your money. It is, it is, it's unbelievable uh, what these people believe, what they say they believe, and again, that's not unbelievable. There are always nuts around. There are always people who are in the fringe. But what's it? It took Nancy Pelosi what a couple of weeks to condemn Antifa. Um, the left is having trouble uh, really criticizing Antifa, uh, and this is what's troubling to me. Chris Beach, you want to comment on this? Yeah, I think you put your finger on it uh, towards the end of that. You know, when Charlottesville happened or when these other similar incidents happened, um, I think pretty much everyone on the right, especially elected officials, instantly denounce whatever it is, the white supremacists, neo-Nazis, etc. But you don't hear the same kind of uh, outrage or denouncements from the left after, uh, I mean, you saw in Berkeley when they attacked peaceful protesters. That's what the Washington Post said. headline said, uh, Antifa attacks peaceful protesters. You just haven't heard the same reaction, so I think that's giving this movement oxygen, and that's what's making it even more dangerous. Yeah. Now, uh, you know, I think I want to talk about a related story, Um, and this related story has to do with one of my favorite uh, TV channels, at least uh, some of the time, uh, and that's ESPN. Um, Jamel Hill who is an ESPN commentator, um, tweeted that uh, that uh, she thought Donald Trump was a white supremacist and was uh, surrounded or partly surrounded by other white supremacists. Now, one of the groups that um, uh, Antifa thinks should be kept from speaking are his white supremacists. Well, by extension, therefore, one would think Antifa, if they could stop the president from speaking, would and would stop others who support Trump from speak, uh, support Donald Trump from speaking. Well, in fact, that's what they've done uh, at a number of uh, at a number of these uh, so-called rallies. Uh, so, how far does this go? Uh, by the way, the ESPN thing—it's it, just crazy to me what they're doing as a, as a sports network. Do they not understand their audience? I mean, it's—it's it's, yes, there are women, but it's mostly men from. What, Chris, 18 to 75 uh, <laughs> who are watching football? Right. You can't get enough of it. I said on the TV show, I said, my wife here is a few feet away from me in the studio, but, you know, I spend more time on the weekend with ESPN than I do with my wife. I'm sorry, unless she wants to sit and watch nine games with me, which she's welcome to do, but chooses not to for some <laughs> weird reason. I don't know what it is. Uh, anyway, has other things to do she thinks are more important. Silly girl. Uh, no, she's not a silly girl. Oh, good anyway. thing. Good thing there are differences between men and women. Yeah. Oh, Chris, <laughs> want to lose your right to free speech? Yeah, right. I couldn't say that on a college campus. No, you couldn't. Anyway, what's with ESPN? I mean, this is a, this is the company, the network that said 
they wouldn't let a guy broadcast the University of Virginia football game, an Asian a guy of Asian heritage, because his name is Robert Lee. It wasn't even Robert E. Lee. This is the uh, company that fired Kurt Schilling because he thought a lot of North Carolinians were right that boys should go to boys' rooms and girls should go to girls' rooms. Well, that was a firing offense. What's with the culture over there? Something wrong. Anyway, when you, when you listen to Professor Marini, especially the last part where he's talking about race, you'll see um, an element of what we're talking about here. Uh, Antifa's happy to expand the number of people whom it thinks uh, should not be allowed free speech, but are the moderates and the conservatives and the great body of the American people ready to speak up against this? Or do they fear what a friend of mine told me the American people fear more than anything else? Your average good guy American fears more than anything else being called a bigot. So he's happy to condemn the Ku Klux Klan and, you know, and, uh, and uh, white supremacists who self-identify as such. But the Antifa, gee, I don't know, you know, and Black Lives Matter, I don't know. So this is something to keep on the radar screen. We'll be watching it too. Again, the heart of the problem is not a fringe group. Fringe groups are always fringe groups. Uh, fr- there have always been fringe groups, I mean. But when the fringe group starts to get a general respectability, um, that's when you that's when you worry about it. It's funny that Antifa talks about the Nazis uh, because they're, they're justifying what they're doing by saying we're preventing Nazis from rising. Well, um, they're the ones I think we need to worry about. And as their reputation and influence becomes more accepted and respectable, that's where our problem is. Chris, do you want to put a final comment on that from your generation? I know I, I, I can't improve on that. Okay. Um, I, I think the point to emphasize that I'll say, uh, the last thing I'll say is that their modus operandi is violence. Um, that's inherent in what they do. Yeah. This Dartmouth yeah. professor said that, you know, speech is not sufficient to stop fascism. Yeah. So that is their, oper- their, yeah. mo- their mode of operation is violence, that's right. force and violence. A last thought, if you'll allow me. I rarely do this, uh, go through the obituary pages, but I saw this and I just had to comment. The passing of President Reagan's science advisor at age 77, former science advisor George J. Keyworth. He went by J. Keyworth. I got to know him some. Uh, I don't think I've ever mentioned him to you, Chris, or maybe to anyone else in a while. I don't think you have. Fascinating and interesting guy. And if you read the uh, August 28th New York Times obituary, folks may want to take a look at it. He was a big supporter of Star Wars, the Strategic Defense Initiative. But a very interesting history. Uh, He went to Yale, and then I believe he did his Ph.D. in physics at Duke. And then he was at Los Alamos in the labs down there where he was working with two of the giants uh, in uh, nuclear physics and uh, weaponry. J. Robert Oppenheimer and Edward Teller. Uh, Oppenheimer had, of course, developed, helped develop the atomic bomb. Uh, Teller was pushing for the hydrogen bomb, the H-bomb, a thousand times more powerful than the atom bomb. Uh, And uh, there was friction between uh, Teller and Oppenheimer. Uh, George Keyworth, J. Keyworth, used to tell stories about this, and they were fascinating. I'll leave it to someone who knows the details to to find those stories and you can we can look for them ourselves and let you know but he was a very agreeable guy and uh early on saw the point of uh, of star wars i will give credit to the new york times in their write-up 
they said that uh, his early support was hooted at by a lot of the scientific community, intellectual community, and so on, but that there's a fair amount of evidence uh, that uh, fear of the Strategic Defense Initiative, fear of Star Wars, is what uh, is what brought Soviet Union to the uh, bargaining table. Uh, Ken Edelman's book, what's the name of that book, Chris? You remember? Uh, Reykjavik. It has Reykjavik in the title. I will find. I will yeah, find okay. out the full name. Uh, Ken Edelman, A D E L M A N. It's about. Uh, it's about the Reagan and, and Gorbachev summit. Reagan Re- at Reykjavik. Reagan at Reykjavik. Um, suggests that uh, uh, Gorbachev's fear of the Strategic Defense Initiative um, was part of what brought him to the bargaining table. Uh, Edward Wick, uh, Char- I'm sorry, Charles Wick, uh, who was an advisor to President Reagan on the plane back to Washington, apparently said to Reagan uh, after the meeting in Reykjavik, President Reagan was distressed about it, but uh, uh, Wick said, today you won the Cold War. May, may have been true. The, what we had going on then in the Strategic Defense Initiative was tiny. The Russians thought it, the Soviets thought it was much bigger. And uh, Reagan said when he got back, let's let's beef it up a little bit. <laughs> so it's closer to what the Soviets are fearing and what's moving them. But uh, Jay Keyworth was, uh, I mean, you talk about a guy out of step, you know, the, 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 a lot of the physicist community, very liberal, didn't like Reagan. He was a charming guy and a very interesting guy, and you know you couldn't always walk down a hall in a in a government office building and run into a PhD in physics who was uh, good natured and wanted to talk politics and tell you stories about J. Robert Oppenheimer and Edward Teller and their arguments about whether to go with the atom bomb or the hydrogen bomb. Uh, wonderful to be reminded of uh, J. Keyworth. You are listening to the Bill Bennett Show. Okay, folks, it's back to school time. You all know that. And instead of talking about the shortcomings of American education, of which there are many, I want to talk about one of the really bright spots in American education. I used to say, when I had this important job, I can't even remember now, if we focus on failure, we'll get failure. If we focus on, interesting word, success, we might get success. Well, I get to talk today, and you get to listen one of the people responsible for real success. Eva Moskowitz is the founder and CEO of Success Academy Charter Schools and author of The Education of Eva Moskowitz, a memoir. This is going to be fun. Welcome. Thanks so much for joining us, Eva. Thanks for having me. I got to call you Eva because I read the review that said the headline of the review was, this is all the audience needs to know. If things are bad, don't get mad, get Eva. <laughs> I love that. I love that. So you got mad about something, and uh, New York was lucky enough to get you. I want to go to the end of the story and then have you build up some of the pieces. What sure. was the head? What's the headline that um, that uh, this audience needs to hear? The equivalent of the Pats uh, winning the Super Bowl, the Success Academy Charter Schools numbers scores. Let's go right to the headline if we can, and then we'll go back. Sure. Well, we are the seventh largest school district in the state of New York, and we serve mostly uh, poor children, and we are number one in the state of New York. Our kids are not just closing the achievement gap, but they are reversing it. Our black and brown kids are outperforming affluent kids around the state of New York. Poor kids, mostly minority kids? Correct. 
and they are and they are outperforming the affluent school districts all over not just the city but the state of New York. That's correct. Give us some numbers or some examples so we know, we know what you're talking about. What's the evidence? Sure. Uh, well, 95% of our kids passed the math exam with 71% of them getting the highest score of four. Uh, in reading and writing, we had 84% of our students passing the exam with a whopping 31% getting the highest score of four. And if you break down the demographics and you look at the performance of homeless students or special ed students or English language learner students, all of our students are uh, besting uh, the city and the state by extremely wide margins. Well, what test, by the way, some people are sticklers on this, which test are you referring to? What's the basic Sure, idea? these are the New York State uh, tests, uh, Common Core aligned. They are very much aligned to the kind of future SAT test that the kids will be taking. And while, while we don't believe they are the be-all and end-all of the underlying purpose of education, they are a measure uh, of what the kids must be able to do to be successful in life. We uh, just will we'll have had some listeners um, go into nervous shock at the use of the phrase common core. Uh, you know about this dispute. Tell us why that, whether you like common core or not, doesn't matter for purposes of our conversation. Sure. I, uh, common core is a set of standards. It's not a curriculum. And I do think that uh, educators need to have a clear sense of what kids by grade should know and be able to do. Uh, E.D. Hirsch did this uh, many years ago to be really specific about what kids by grade need to know and be able to do. So I am a supporter of them, uh, but reasonable people can differ, obviously, yeah, on sure. uh, their value. Okay, let's let's find out how you built this. I just got your book yesterday, The Education okay. of Eva Moskowitz, and I start. I got it three pages in in the, some French restaurant, and, and that Ron Perlman wanted or didn't want. I can't figure this out yet. But this is where the book starts. But tell us, tell us how you started and why you started. Well, I I wrote the book because not everyone uh, knows. Uh, the resistance to change and the resistance uh, to parent choice. Uh, and if you go try and change uh, things, you're going to run into a battle royale. And on the one side are really uh, unions and the special interests uh, really invested in protecting jobs and a certain way of doing things. And on the other side are parents who are desperate for great schools for their kids. And I wanted to give uh, readers a front row seat to this slugfest and really what is at stake for our country. Okay. 
How did you get the results? What are the ingredients to bake this cake? What, I, I, I did cheat. I went to the end of the book. Management, parents, uh, standards, uh, order in the classroom, other things. But but tell us in your own words, how did you get to this incredible result? I, I had uh, lunch today with uh, several uh, education uh, so-called experts. And, um, and I, well, I think they really are. And I said, what's the story of the year? And um, most people thought you were the story of the year, the Success Academy. Uh, I was the first to speak, so maybe they're just being polite to me, but I don't think so. Um, tell us how you got there. What are the building blocks? Sure. Well, I think one building block is rigor. Uh, if you look internationally and you look at what kids around the world are doing in third grade in the United States, we tend to not do that until fifth grade or maybe even sixth grade. And when I started success, I had three young children of my own and I find children to be awfully capable and clever, uh, much more intellectually agile uh, often than adults. And I always believe that kids are underestimated uh, intellectually and that you could be far more rigorous in what you expected them uh, to learn, what math problems you expected to solve. So one of the signature design elements of success is the rigor of the academics, the difficulty of the mathematical problems, the nature of the scientific experiments, the poetry that we ask kids to read. That is just fundamental. If you ask a low-level question, kids will give you a low-level answer. If you ask a high-level question and kids have to puzzle and struggle, um, they will figure it out. Might take a little time, but they'll get there. They will. I remember Al Shanker told me once a story. He said he went into a classroom, remember when we were doing tracking, and he said to the, quote, slow track students, what do you want to learn? And the child said, we want to learn what the A-track students are learning. It just might take us a little more time. Yeah. Uh, I, one of the people at lunch today said, Eva works her kids really hard. Homework? Is there homework? A lot of homework? How, how hard do they There work? is. There is homework. Uh, and another, you know, difference, and this is where we're kind of old-fashioned, we actually don't believe that schools can do it all, that every, you know, the educators have to do it alone. We really believe that parents brought the kids into the world, and parents are responsible for getting their kids to school on time and uh, not signing that the homework is done if it's not done uh, so we do expect parents, and we work really hard at that, too, uh, to be invested in their children's education. It has to be a true partnership between school and home, and we don't believe that poor parents love their kids any less than middle-class or affluent parents. We find that we have to really invite them into the school and uh, generate their support, uh, and also ensure that they are supporting their kids and the school. Do you uh, invite the parents uh, 
for interviews before admission? Do you talk to parents and oh, students? No, no, no. And you're not allowed to do that. Uh, the uh, Enrollment is by random lottery. So we get who we get. Uh, and we really need to inspire parents to be deeply invested. And we're able to do that in part because um, we uh, teach kids to read in kindergarten. And uh, we are teaching their kids chess and their kids are doing science experiments every day. Uh, but it, it has to be a partnership between school and home. But you can't pick them based on conversations because somebody's going to say you cherry pick, right? No. Yeah, there are very strict laws. The lottery is really sacred. So we don't know. Uh, who applies? We don't know if they're special ed. We don't we don't know uh, much about them other than their name and their address. And then um, you know we 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 educate uh, those who decide to come to success. And we had seventeen thousand parents apply, and unfortunately we had to send fourteen thousand parents. Yeah. home empty-handed because we only yeah. have 3,000 spots. What happens, uh, you know, after I was Secretary of Education, I was the first drug czar, you've got to have some kids who have come come to school with serious problems because of drug addiction to my parents or alcoholism or other things. What happens? Can these kids make it? Yeah. I mean, we have kids who <laughs> suffer from a lot of social ills uh, and um, you know, we often have to offer all sorts of um, forms of therapy and extra help, small group instruction. Um, but, you know, we find that um, good schooling matters. You can teach kids to read and do math uh, at a pretty high level if you are dedicated to doing so. Yeah, I'm curious too. I know some of our uh, some of our listeners will be. What, what's your policy on um, iPhones, uh, calculators, computers, internet? Um, well, our kids get uh, laptops starting in fourth grade, and all of our writing is done on our laptops. Uh, kids, uh, New York is can be an unsafe place, so. Uh, Kids tend to have cell phones. They have to put them in the bin uh, so that they don't go off during class and so forth. But uh, we allow cell phones. Understood. Um, I, I, I'm curious as, as to as to uh, management. Uh, uh, I visited 120 schools when I was Secretary of Education, and what I found was that I, I found very few good schools that weren't well managed. The person in charge, site-based management, I guess, is the is the is the is the uh, education ease for this. How many schools are there, and who picks the person in charge? Well, we have forty-six schools, uh, and we are educating fifteen thousand five hundred kids, K to twelve, uh, and uh, school managers. So those are mini superintendents select um, the principals. And I think your you know, statement is correct. While many people um, pay 
attention exclusively to the teacher in front of the classroom. And of course, that's important. But I think leadership and management are undervalued in education. And we view our principals as the most important kind of players in our world. I visited a great school district in Missouri, and um, the superintendent said in a lot of places, the assistant superintendent picks principals and ideal the, the the superintendent deals with the problems and complaints. He said, I do reverse here. The most important thing I do is pick the people who are running those schools. Yes. Yep. Yes. I couldn't, I couldn't agree who more. Who picks the and superintendent? Case, what do you do? Well, we are doing a version of that. It is absolutely one of the most critical decisions. All of our principals have to, in order to be a principal in our world, you have to have been an assistant principal in our schools for several years because we have to make sure that our principals uh, understand our design and are philosophically aligned and are um, very, very talented at executing against the design. We have a very particular pedagogy. We have very particular philosophies around um, parent investment. It's a full-blown design, and you really, really need to understand all the details of it so that you can successfully execute against. We also have the luxury that our principals are constantly talking to one another. Uh, it's very useful to understand um, strengths and weaknesses of a particular school when everybody's executing against the same design. So if you and I are middle school principals, for example, and your data is much better than mine, I would be expected to call you up and say, hey, what are you doing? Can I come visit your school? Because I really want to understand how I can improve as a leader and a manager and how I can get better outcomes for my students. Okay, we've talked about content. We've talked about parents. We've talked about student work. We've talked about school managers, principals. I want to ask you one big question at the end, but what am I missing? Is there a major building block I'm missing? Yeah, I would just say um, teacher and leader training. Um, you know, the schools of education have done it a certain way. I don't necessarily believe that that has been the most effective way. Uh, and we, uh, we, if we train poorly, we're stuck with the results. So we have a vested interest in our training being world-class. Uh, and as I think you know, uh, I have built uh, an ed institute not only for our internal folks, but frankly, uh, for others. And we have put all of our K-4 literacy curriculum and pedagogy online for any educator in America or around the world uh, to uh, use. Uh, and we are anticipating putting lots of our teacher training and leader training. Uh, our teachers get 13 weeks of training every single year, new and returning. We invest in the key teaching practices that uh, create tremendous return on investment in terms of student outcomes. I want to ask you this. Uh, again, the book is The Education of Eva Moskowitz, and uh, there's so much more to say, but 
Um, when I was secretary, I'm sorry to keep referring to my experience, but I have to. It's no, no. I went out and visited Jaime Escalante. You know who he was, the great math teacher out in Garfield mm-hmm. High School who had all these kids from the barrio passing the advanced placement exam. And people said, why do you keep going out there? I said, because I studied philosophy, and Immanuel Kant said, you prove the actual, you prove the possible by the actual. If people say people can't do this, people can't do that, and all of a sudden people are doing it, you've proved that it's possible. The really extraordinary thing that you have done is to prove the possible by the actual. So my question is this, how many parades will there be in your honor how many award banquets? How many times will the mayor have you for dinner? How often has the governor flown his jet down to pick you up? You know, this is one of the hardest problems in American society. The education of the poor, poor minorities, kids who don't come from good backgrounds, and somebody has figured out how to do it. So I imagine what you just said about one principal calling another is happening to you all the time. Thousands of people are calling you and asking you for the recipe, correct? No, <laughs> uh, no parades, uh, no ticker tape uh, parades. <laughs> and far we'll fewer. do one for you. I will get a small cadre of people, and we will do it. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, in fact, what's the, the what's the problem? Opposite. I'm I'm labeled, you know, controversial and a lightning rod, and uh, uh, you know, it it. I think, you know, it's threatening to the existing yeah. educational yeah. infrastructure. Yeah. And so Because uh, let me interrupt you. Don't don't a yes, lot of people ahead. don't a lot of people, some conservatives, a lot of liberals in my experience, you don't have to come in on that. But that actually don't a lot of people secretly believe you can't educate these kids. It's just hopeless. They just need to become wards of the state and you really can't educate them. And you've shown the opposite. <laughs> And this is an embarrassment yes, to their off. beliefs. They've What's been that? written off as uneducable, yeah, yeah. and that is just simply false. And we are losing generations and generations of kids. Uh, and this country is going to suffer. You know, countries around the world that are successful have a world-class education system. And, you know, we spend a lot of money on public education, and often we are not getting the results for that investment, not to mention, of course, the human toll that it takes on kids and families um, for this lack of access to opportunity. But it is, it is really, um, it is so unnecessary. I find it, frankly, very, very painful that we would be willing to lose generations of kids. It's not like sending a man to the moon. It's actually, it's not rocket science. Yeah. And, and, and again, it's been done. It's not like it's never been done. It's been done and it's right there, um, for all to see. Well, when they come around to their senses and have the parade, we will be there with our ticker. (laughs) I want to thank you for what you've done, for your example, for what you've taught us. Um, it's, it's, it's excellent. George Elliott, we use this word a lot, but George Eliot said, excellence is important because it encourages us about life generally. And you have encouraged us about life generally. Thank you, Eva Moskowitz. Oh, well, thank you for having me. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Bill Bennett Show. Okay, folks, let's change gears. Let's talk about the health of the American Republic. Each week, the American Strategy Group, President is Brian Kennedy, 
brings us important conversations on the state of America, its people, and its culture. I'm very proud to say that I'm a fellow of the American Strategy Group. Our featured guest this week is John Marini, professor of political science at the University of Nevada, Reno, and a senior fellow of the Claremont Institute. Hey, welcome, John. Nice of you to join us. Thank you. All right, John, I introduced you earlier in the lead end of the show by saying you were one of the few professors in academia in the humanities or social sciences who supported Donald Trump, uh, and still do, I believe. Do you still support Donald Trump after Charlottesville? I do. I'll tell you why I do. You tell me why you do, if you do. Yeah, I do. I mean, I think that's all part of the same battle that Trump has had, which is establishing what is uh, defensible in terms of how we understand what morality is. And that morality is a form of political correctness. The, it's the same battle that he's been waging all along. Trump tends to understand these things in terms of general principles, uh, in terms of the law, rule of law, but the elites in this country understand morality in terms of categories, c- concrete categories, uh, demographic categories understood in terms of race, gender, etc. All of those categories have been established as a way of preventing the kind of unity that I think Trump rightly sees as necessary when you're trying to govern a whole country. You have to look to a common good. It's impossible, I think, for our office holders really now to think about a common good when they understand these categories as having a morality in and of themselves. And this all, I think, derives from the perversion of the principle of equality that comes about after the Civil Rights Act turned into a kind of bureaucratic monstrosity with affirmative action and established categories of of morality that derive from a principle of equality but ultimately distort that principle and make it impossible to realize politically. And so I think what has happened in this period is that as the organized groups began to understand how to become part of the administrative state, in other words, to to establish interests, whether they're economic or whether they're uh, political or social, any of those interests come to be defended on the basis of groups. And it makes it very difficult then for office holders to think in terms of a public good, a common good. And those groups are these identity groups, uh, gay or black or feminist or okay. Those those identity groups are established by morality, the morality of postmodernism. I mean, that establishes an understanding of history that that, that looks to the past in a way that anything good, or noble about the past is ignored. And all of the deficiencies, the defects, the the failure to live up to the aspirations become what becomes a living part of the present. History, in other words, becomes a force for the destruction, really, of of the good of the past. Now, you have just... I asked you why Trump, and you just described why Trump, I guess, or gave your answer, in language Donald Trump never uses. 
What you no. just said to me was I've never sound, heard anything like that from Donald Trump. <laughs> no. no. Does he instinctively think, understand what you're saying? I think he does because he thinks that the office that he holds is an office on behalf of all of the American people. He thinks that everybody that's elected, and one of the reasons he does that is because he's never been in politics for the last 50 years. Because in the last 50 years, it has been increasingly hard, uh, become increasingly harder for any of the office holders to be able to think outside of those categories that have established constituencies that they depend on. Yeah. And, and, and actually, I was just watching the other day with uh, Hillary Clinton's book tour. She reestablishes those categories in a way negatively by, because <clears throat> I saw a rerun of her remarks, which were so uh, deathly for her. I think, I think they were. Uh, yeah. The, the, the 50% of the Trump supporters are xenophobic, homophobic, right. et cetera, yeah. because that's the way she thinks and she believes. I, I, I guess because he talks about the American people in general, that by yeah. her lights and the lights of her fellow travelers, that makes him an enemy of identity politics and therefore of the people who so identify. Of course. Uh, here's the problem I think Trump uh, posed for the opposition, the, 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 the people that are defenders of the administrative state. For the last 30 years at least, the offices in America were held by people who have not understood their office in terms of an American public good. More and more, they have understood their offices in terms of a global public good. And when Trump ran, he ran to try to establish an identity of a, of a, of a common good that was the last common good that Americans could cling to, the good of their own country. And once they mobilized that, once he mobilized that sentiment, that, that the opposition had to categorize that as illegitimate. Whereas every other identity group has a preferred place in Washington, there's no place for those who, who have an understanding that undermines group identity. All right, let's, let's be specific to Charlottesville. And if it's a bad example, we can get off it quickly. But what was it? A lot of people in this town, I'm talking to you from D.C., obviously, and I'm sure a lot of college campuses and out on the West Coast, the East Coast, said this was the end of the the uh, Trump presidency. If there was ever any legitimacy to it, it vanished that day uh, after Charlottesville when he made his, his pronouncements and then two days later when he gave the press conference. What's the beef and what's the answer? Well, I think the beef is that most of the elites have, have understood morality in the way in which it has been established by postmodernism and political correctness has established in their minds that morality is understood in terms of groups that when you look at the polls after what Trump uh, said in Charlottesville it, it didn't filter it didn't register that way among the population in the country it registered that way among the elites you saw the all the executives from the corporations you saw the various uh, parts of the of the of the administrative state establishment scurrying to get away from Trump, but they have done that at every point in which Trump looked vulnerable. The real problem with Trump is he is a great threat to the administrative state and to the organized interests that have established their their place in Washington, 
and have provided it uh, very it have made it very difficult for the American people to establish any kind of public opinion political rule that exists outside of Washington. Everything is administratively centralized. There's no real political life at state and local levels. The state and local governments have been co-opted by the centralized administrative state. Public opinion in state and local governments has been preempted by a media, which is also a great centralizer. The media likes to have centralized control. So this is a, Trump sees this, I think, in terms of an, an attempt to restore political authority to the people. Was there anything wrong with him saying, I saw de- uh, violence, I saw uh, bad people, bad behavior on both sides? Of course not. I mean, <laughs> that's what the rule of law means. It's the behavior of people that establishes whether or not they're culpable, not the identity of people. Yeah, I was just, you know, I, I was just walking around saying, sounds right to me. And then the more I read, even in the New York Times, Washington Post, the New York Times had a story about a woman who drove to Charlottesville from Indiana because she says, I just don't like people tearing down statues without talking about things yeah. first. Uh, well, she didn't sound, you know, horrible to me. So the notion, <laughs> the notion that there were some people there who weren't, you know, violent, horrible racists seemed very plausible. There she was right there in the New York Times. Yeah, no, I I think that that was very clearly a case where uh, the the whole purpose of that uh, Charlottesville was to mobilize the sentiment against white racism uh, and to delegitimize that white racism, which they have tried to paint Trump as the the man who's who has mobilized that sentiment. But no, nothing Trump has done, and even from the very start. He said, I want to un- unite America. But to unite them, you have to get beyond these categories. They don't want to get beyond these categories. The only way you can rule a country like this, this big, and politically allow, uh, 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 maintain uh, control of a decentralized public is by dividing them up and creating safe constituencies that are mobilized behind some kind of interest. But, John, let me just ask, because I, I, I've been arguing very much along your lines, not as well as you, at this point, and a sophistic, pretty sophisticated, because at least they read the Federalist Papers, liberals said to me, what are you objecting to about uh, these groups? Uh, this is faction. This is what Madison's talking about. A group yeah. of citizens united by a common impulse of passion. My response was, is, well, they're not united by a common impulse of passion, race, sex, uh, and other things. This is not their interest properly understood. This is something else. Yeah, and of course you have to understand what Madison meant by that. It was not that the groups themselves should not mobilize. It's just that the representatives of the groups are going to be free to make decisions based on a common good because you have many interests. If you're captured by one interest, then you you don't have the freedom to pursue a public good. That Madison's whole argument there was on behalf of allowing reason to rule because he said when you have a lots of organized interests, then the the representatives can use can can deliberate and use reason to try to determine which parts of the of the interests or passions of the various groups are defensible and which ones have to be 
uh, overruled on behalf of some common good. What, what we have lost sight of, and what political science itself has lost sight of, is the possibility of determining what a public good or common good is. For Madison, that meant the rule of reason. Let's talk particularly, John, for a minute, if we can. We're talking to John Marini uh, from the University of Nevada, Reno, and a fellow of the Claremont Institute, about one of these moral categories, as you called it, and that is race. Uh, is there a privileged uh, uh, race in America now? It seems in conversation there, there may be, despite the fact that uh, white speakers are often uh, accused of speaking out of privilege. It seems to me oh, a lot of the sensitivity uh, is not on, on that side, but on, on the side of uh, people who speak for blacks or say they speak for black Americans yeah. uh, on grounds that they are a specially deserving political category. I'm not sure I'm saying that right. But how did we get to this impasse where you have to just hush and hold your breath when uh, anything is said about race? Um, a very famous uh, conservative uh, talk show host, uh, whoever's name everybody knows, tells me, I just don't talk about it. There's just no point in talking about it. There's no winning in talking about race anymore in America. Yeah. Well, the problem, the problem with race, of course, is it, it has established itself as a, as a moral category on behalf of those who were formerly oppressed. And that category, of course, is, is, it, the, the distortion of, of, of the use of race is that all of those who support that ideological view benefit from having that view in place. But that, that includes, you, you have to say, many of those elites in all of the other groups who have, who have accepted that point of view and have established their moral superiority on the foundation of, of the defense of that point of view. The problem with it is, of course, that only those few at the very top who have established this moral ground have profited from the defense of that view. It hasn't helped the groups that they purport to defend, that they purport to. So you look at every one of those categories that were established as, as categories that were formerly oppressed, have created, whether it's gender, whether it's race, whether of any of those things, look at who actually benefits from the kind of privilege that's given on the basis of the acceptance of that view. It's only a very narrow few. They are the ones that have the ability to organize, to mobilize, and to establish that group as, as a, a, a constituency that they represent. They it's, they, it's the elites of the group, not the groups themselves, that benefit. And this is true of the whole administrative state itself. Well, this is, uh, I remember when I, I wrote a book, uh, the first book I wrote with Terry Eastland, Counting by Race, about the Baki decision uh, out there in your part of the country. We found out that an awful lot in some universities, most of the students who benefited from the new affirmative action programs then, after they were put in place, were the, were the sons and daughters of very successful people, children yeah. of diplomats, Jesse Jackson's kids, people sure. like that, not the people who we heard the program was intended for, the, but yeah. they a lot of children of the elites. The great tragedy of this is that it has distorted the possibility of the understanding of the true meaning of equality. 
when equality comes to be distorted in a way that race establishes the ground of it, you have lost what the meaning of equality is. In the same way as you would if, you, if, if class becomes the, the ground of the moral authority in, in establishing how we understand what, what the historic good is. Because we're looking at these categories of history, whether it's race or class, are intelligible with respect to the things in human society that are, that are changeable. The, so, the social, social mores, social institutions are changeable. Economic institutions are changeable. But to establish moral categories out of those categories of history, as Marx did say, the moral part of, of the class is the proletariat. As the right-wing Hegelian said, the moral, the moral uh, part of, of the understanding of society has to be understood in terms of race because that's the category that establishes the, the ground of society and blood. Those two categories of history have dominated the 20th century in national socialism and in, and in communism. And they're both ideologies based on history. Last thing for for this session, and we hope to have more sessions with you later on. But what um, I'm sort of shifting gears, but not really. Sure. What explains the attachment, the deep and passionate attachment of the professoriate or a lot of the professoriate to these ideas? How did this happen? Well, I think what happened is that when progressivism was confident of itself when it understood the future as, 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 a, as a great good and, and looked confidently to the future, it had great confidence in, in, in its science, in social science. And that confidence that existed in, in the social sciences, in the humanities, in the arts, and all of those kinds of things were in a way undermined in, by the, in the 20th century. And what, 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 and this is what Strauss said, Leo Strauss said, about the problem of positivism and, and, and social science. It could never resist the, 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 the historicism, the moral authority of historicism, because it, it divorced itself from any ground of understanding of values, which meant then that the values that that, that uh, arise in the 20th century arise from the way in which history is understood. Postmodern history, the postmodernists who have now gotten hold of the intellectual levers, I think, of the meaning of history, they, have, they are completely pessimistic about the future. And their goal is to understand the past in such a way as to bring about a loss of confidence in Western civilization itself. Uh, the, the, the problem here, of course, is that historicism has established the moral authority of the social sciences as well. There, you know, when the real social sciences, I mean, the social sciences that still believe in the, uh, the object, objectivity of, of, of social science research, and there's some that do, they realize that this is a threat to the methodology of social science, because, social science, because it denies reality. It denies it. It, it believes that reality is a social construct. And I just so science. 
Yeah. No, I, I mean, I just feel bad about it. I just, I mean, I, I've <laughs> thought about it, but I just can't get over feeling bad. I, you know, I pursued a PhD in philosophy, John, because I wanted to find out what the truth of things was and, and is. And then I found myself the other day saying to a young person, whatever you do, don't listen to the professors. And I thought, yeah. my gosh, what has happened to me? And I thought, well, I don't I think it's me. I think it's them. I, I, no, said, it I said at a lunch, this is kind of a funny story, kind of sad funny story, a lunch with three supposed conservative intellectuals in this town, people who write for a living and are all never Trumpers. Uh, I got really angry at a lunch, and I said, the problem with you guys is you uh, – I said, is that no one who has ever been to a Trump rally has ever read any of your stupid articles. And <laughs> and I, I think I was I think I nailed it because I yeah. they, they exploded. Uh yeah, well that's wrong with the people at the Trump rallies. I said, Well I think that may be what's right with the people at the Trump rallies. Yeah. Well, I think what has happened to the social sciences and to that what you're calling that professoriate is they have become an integral part of the modern administrative state. In the in in supplying what is perceived to be useful knowledge, they have a great stake. I mean, the the liberals and conservatives alike are the social sciences are uh, are educated in the same way. I mean, when you get back to it, it is the problem of education that we don't have a liberal education that makes it possible to teach the genuine meaning of of the principles that establish liberalism, equality, and liberty. When that has been distorted and undermined, then, of course, uh, they become really, their their interests are no different than other interests. They are also incapable of understanding a common good, uh, understood in terms of of a country, a compact, however you want to understand what is the foundation of the defense of civil and religious liberty, as it was understood in, in Locke or the American founding. Very well said. Um, John, we're going to have to leave it there. This is a, a great introduction to you and, and to these ideas. Um, you, don't, you haven't made me feel any better, but I think, <laughs> I think you made me feel smarter, but not, not better. But uh, such is, uh, such is the, the way things are going. We'll talk, I hope, next time about what we can do about this. You know, what we can do about this. But thank you, John Marini, very, very much. All right, thanks. Okay, we have to leave it there for today, folks. If you missed any of my previous podcast shows, please make sure you're subscribed on iTunes so you can get every episode the second it comes out. We'll talk to you next week. Big surprise and big announcement coming up in the next couple of weeks. Stay with us.